Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Tim. And this is Get On Board, a podcast about games worth playing. Join us every week for great analysis on board games, pick fives, reviews, and all sorts of other entertaining board game talk. Welcome to Get On Board, the podcast about games worth playing. I'm Andrew. And I'm Tim. And we are here with a doozy of a review and a discussion topic for you this week. Yes, the review is going to be on one of our favorite games. It's definitely top 10 game for both of us, I believe. It appeared mm-hmm. in our top 10 Monopoly. Uh, list. Monopoly. Nope. Today we're going to be talking about Lancaster. Lancaster. One of our favorite games. Mm. And after that, we're going to hit one of our uh, favorite topics. Not really well, close super enough. favorite. But this is a really hot topic. It's about moralizing and board gaming and mm. what to do when people have sort of different opinions on uh, that are morally based that affect their opinion of a game or their desire to play a game. So that should be an interesting. We about to get up on a high horse. Just kidding. No. We're going to tell you what you should do. We're going to tell you everything you love is wrong. But the way that we've structured this, you're forced to listen to the Lancaster review first. Sure. There's nothing you can do about it. We have rigged the internet. Fast forward. All right. So Lancaster, let me give you kind of a, a brief introduction. Take it away. All right. First, let's say what Lancaster is. Lancaster is kind of an older game. It's been around for a while. Mature. It's a mature game. And it's a game that you would be very much forgiven for overlooking. Yeah. For a couple of reasons. It's bland, yellow-orange box. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big Q on the box. Mm-hmm. Meaning Queen Games. Meaning a company that has put out a lot of mediocre junk, with some exceptions, some mm-hmm. notable exceptions. Mm-hmm. But a lot of mediocre stuff that sort of makes me think twice and research a lot before I pick up a game. Sure. Lancaster, in this case, they put out a real hit. So your, your opinion of, your, of Lancaster might not change when you open the box. The art is serviceable, but nothing really that yeah. great. Nothing it's, really thrilling. It's okay. It's good. It feels so, like 2010. Yeah. Yeah. But once you start playing this game, what you find is... Oh, something just rich and enjoyable. So let me explain the game. In Lancaster, you are knights competing for, I guess, favor in England or reputation in England. The favor of Henry V. Yeah. That is uh, depicted by (gasps) victory points, shockingly. So uh, you gain victory points through your exploits in battles. You gain victory points through getting various nobles on your side. And you gain victory points and, and, and through a couple of other means, uh, some majority bonuses at the end of the game, etc. But the game is essentially divided into three phases. The first one, in which you place knights either in England to get different bonuses on in different cities where you place them, or on some battles that are out there in which you're vying for victory points. The second phase where you then go to Parliament, and based on the number of nobles you've had and voting cubes that they've generated, you'd vote for some laws to take place. And then there is a third phase, which is uh, where you receive rewards uh, based upon the counties where you've committed some of your knights to, and based upon the battles or the conflicts that you 
uh, committed to as well. And I forgot to mention that in the law phase, when a law is approved, you get rewards for that too. That that right. affects that affects what what right. what you do. So that's the that's the core of this game. So why is it so great, Andrew? Yeah, why it still is sounds kind of boring. So it, it, when, you, when, you de- when you describe it that way. What way? Hey, <laughs> <laughs> you know this is this is a common board game problem. I've noticed, like even some of my favorite podcasters, mm-hmm. when they get into the description of a game, mm-hmm. it's just kind of like you've really got to pay attention, yeah, uh, to uh, to, um, um, to to try to find it interesting. It's, yeah. it's usually not. Lancaster doesn't sound that interesting because the best ingredient doesn't come in the box. What's that? An overpriced expansion, you say? No. The best ingredient in Lancaster is your opponents. This is the magic moment of the game. I'm going to harp on a pet topic of mine. In Lancaster, you care deeply about what everyone else is doing. This is a game where you get all up in each other's Mm -hmm. business. And when I was trying to think of games to compare Lancaster to, all that sprang to mind were area control games. Now, Lancaster isn't really an area control game per se. You are competing for these worker spots, but it doesn't look very much like something like El Grande or Tammany Hall or even Lords of Vegas. But what it does do is it feels like those. The sort of player interaction that you get in an area control game is exactly what you get in Lancaster. It's mean, knives drawn, no holds barred. And the best, best part, I think, is that you can shove people off. So it's this back and forth. It's fluid. Your, your power shifts and changes across the table, and you are constantly interacting with your friends. And speaking of that interaction, let me kind of hit those phases sure. one more time and describe them in a little more detail so that people get the feel for what's happening in those phases. Yeah. This first phase, which is the phase where you place your knights on... The counties, that and the battles, that is like the most delicious part of this game. Yeah, this this is where this game, you can think of the knights as workers. You, you place them on a spot and then you'll get that benefit in the rewards phase. But you're you're two steps away from the rewards phase at this point. Right. So you place your knight on a spot that requires a minimum of two knights to do. And that one has, I don't know, let's say castle upgrade on it. Right. Okay, great. You have it, or do you? See, the beautiful thing about Lancaster is if I place a two-knight on that spot and Andrew has a two-knight and he wants that spot, well, he's going to have to one-up me. So he'll either take that two-knight that he has and place it there with a little squire on top of it, which adds a bonus to it, or he will um, place a three-knight on it. Right. And when it comes back around to me, I can look at that and go, hmm. And I can place my number four knight, which is the highest knight you can have on. Or I can place a three with even more squires. And he would take his knight back. He would lose his squires. Yep. So there's this really stiff competition for those spaces. And you really have to decide what you're going to commit mm-hmm. to at that point. The battles are also tense. Because the person who commits more knight power to the battle will get the highest uh, score for that battle. And scores are paid out, I think, first, second, and third. Mm-hmm. That's Yeah, that's right. So... Um, those also get really tense. And when you commit guys to battles, you also get uh, to choose a little bonus off the board, like some coin, uh, a little uh, tile that gives you coins or gives you squires. It gives you those sort of immediately, right? So that is like that is like the phase one of this game. 
Phase two of this game, when you vote for the laws. Man, I love the laws. I love the laws because the laws sit out on this little player board, and these are essentially rules that change the the game. They'll either give you a bonus for having a certain number of knights or for being on a certain number of squares in England or for being in a certain number of battles in France or sending enough knights to one battle or something like that. But these laws don't just automatically happen. You all use your voting cubes, which you get through influencing England, basically. So you have these voting cubes to spend as income, and you then vote on passing or failing these laws. And the comical part is, it's a blind bid, and no one... You kind of know what everyone else wants to pass, but sometimes you get those surprises when someone votes no on a law you thought for sure they were going to try to pass, or you'll try to broker a last-minute deal, you know, let's both vote no on this one to shut him down, and then we'll pool our resources and vote yes on this one, and it'll help us both. Mm-hmm. And the laws add this variable aspect where even when you're placing your knights in the beginning, in England, in France, in your castle, you kind of have to be thinking ahead, because if there's a law out there that rewards you for placing in England, and your strategy maybe already requires you to be heavily in England, well, you're going to want that law passed. You're going to want to get some voting cubes. You're going to want to make sure that goes through. Or maybe you're going to want to go all out in England, convince people that that's the law you're going to try to pass, and then save your cubes for another law, which you really want to pass. So, like, here's an example. Let's say that you have a, there's a law out there that says, hey, for every unit you have, for every night you have committed to a battle, you're going to get a victory point. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really cool. What if you're the only person out on the battlefield? Yeah. And you're not going to get that law passed. two or three players. Right. So this is where you've got to be kind of feeling out, well, is it worth, if I'm the only one out there, is it worth going for this? Or do I try to negotiate with other players at this point to join me here? Right. But see, you're doing all of this in that first placement phase. The law, the law phase is upcoming, and, and, right. and sort of you don't know what's going to happen. You have at to that think point. ahead. You okay, really have to think folks, ahead. this is voting done interesting. And at the risk of painting with too broad a brush, I looked through the first ten pages of the voting mechanic on Board Game Geek, and what we've got is Dixit, and pretty much a wasteland of hidden roles games. I'm not a hidden roles fan. Okay, I have not seen voting done successfully in very many games. They exist. Dixit's one of my favorites, for example. I'm sure others exist that I overlooked, so don't tar and feather me here. But Lancaster does voting so interestingly because you're all invested in these different pieces geographically of the board, and then you're trying to distill that down into this law board where you have to figure out how many points it's going to get you, how much it's going to help your opponents. Sometimes you help another opponent to help you, and, oh, man, it's just a really interesting decision. I've never seen voting have this much thought behind it. It feels like we're actually an English parliament. I love it. It's just great. So it sounds like we've kind of, we're kind of already unintentionally, but joyously bleeding into the magics <laughs> of our, of this game. Sure. So would you call that one of your magics of this oh, game? That absolutely. And you know what? I'm terrible at it. This is the worst. This is where I always lose the game. I always lose the game in the laws, but I love the challenge. I love trying to manipulate everyone else around the table to get that law board exactly where I want it. And when that happens, it's so satisfying. You feel like a mastermind Mm -hmm. because you've worked everyone else's competing goals to come out with this scenario where you're on top and they don't even know it, the fools. It's just wonderful. I love it. I love it. My my magic kind of ties a little bit to that, mm-hmm. but the first magic that I'll bring out about this game is how how the various mechanics interlock. 
Yeah. You have this really weird sort of worker place, and I'm going to get to that in a minute because I don't think it's actually worker placement. Okay. I'm going to, and it's not even fully worker allocation, but I'll get to that in a minute. That's another magic to me. But you have this really weird worker placement phase um, at, at first where you can assign them to either the counties or the battles. And then you know the laws are going to pass. But then you've also committed guys guys to the counties to get these various right. bonuses, right? But the problem is that the bonuses for the counties aren't going to pay out until later on, and they pay right. out in a certain order. So they could it could be that in the way that they pay out, they don't benefit you like you hoped mm-hmm. if you weren't counting on the order in which they paid out. Right. So you, the my magic in this game is how you have to think ahead because of the weight. These mechanisms almost like inter- interlock on a ladder. Yeah, it's like a chronological where every fit. where every turn you take three steps up a ladder. But when you're on the first step, you better be thinking about how it impacts step yeah. two and step three. So that to me, the magic moment is when you are going to place a knight on a county in phase mm-hmm. one. Yeah. And that law is out there. And you know that law is up and coming that says if you have two knights on counties, uh, you get some bonus points or whatever right. the reward is. And you're looking at the other players wondering, am I going for the right thing here? Because I need, <laughs> I need other people to sure. be invested in this law passing. Sure. Except that I don't want the guy who's ahead right now to be invested in this law passing because he doesn't need any more VP. Right. So, shoot. Do I do I go ahead and do this even in... in maybe not pass the law right because i know that it will hurt him or do i try to get one other player on board with me so that two of us can gang up on the third and get this law passed and so you're going to have to not only think ahead but at that moment engage in outthinking your opponent and negotiating with the other players right all at once i think that's why it feels so much like an area control game to me because you just have this natural Bash the leader in a way that doesn't sink the game for me. Bash the leader is exhausting when it's constant. Right. But when it's provoked by necessity, when you have this game state that the players can alter and you say, look, if we don't do something, he's going to continue to exploit this. We have to level the playing field for ourselves. That just kind of naturally comes out of the game state. That's really satisfying. Right. I mean, that's why I love Tammany Hall. That's why I love El Grande. And this feels like that in the best possible way. I would say it's a little more tied to the mechanics than El Grande yeah. or Tammany Hall. Yeah. Like Tammany Hall is just the most basic bare bones barebone mechanics yeah. that gives you a reason, an excuse to negotiate. Right. Well, so, it's sort of like, like a, sort of like Sheriff Nottingham or something right. like that, right? It's or, like Tammany Hall, but every picture, every territory in Tammany Hall giving you a different action that you can do. Yeah. That's kind of the stakes. Yeah. You know, you're you've got the basic territory control, okay, that's great, but then on top of that there's this bonus action that you get to do almost. So I guess you could say this is an area control game. Here's another way the the chronological aspect of this game kind of throws you. So you can hire nobles to sit at your dining table and nobles give you more voting tokens in parliament. They give you more influence with which to pass laws. So you say, okay, great, I'm gonna go all out on nobles this round. I'm gonna go to four different locations. I'm gonna hire all those locations nobles. I'm gonna get a bunch of voting cubes to affect the law. Well, that's great. You've got all your knights on your spaces. And what comes next is not the rewards. 
but the laws. So those voting cubes that you had planned on for passing right. the laws aren't going to help you until around in advance. So it's this kind of staggered thinking where you're kind of thinking, okay, this isn't actually going to help me until next round. So right. let's do this and then let's take a break. Let's think about this round's problems with the law passing. Now let's get to next round where I reap the rewards of what I placed last round. And it's this, it's really, it's a really interesting puzzle. And you throw in every other player's motivations and man, this one just feels challenging every time. And the decisions you have to make are deliciously tense. Yeah. I would say the core tension of the game is what I've already described. Mm -hmm. That whole that whole piece of timing. how what you're doing now is, is going to be impacted in timing, is going to reap results in a later round, yeah. but it's so dependent on how the other players around the table react right. in the voting round. That, to me, is a core tension. Another other key tension in this game is, it's not uncommon, I think a lot of games have this, but but it's sort of, do I build the engine or do I start mm -hmm. reaping points from the engine? Right. Um, committing to battles is going to help you reap point, re points from the engine that you're building. And you can, hey, you can in first round make some, some great pointage yep. on battles. I've won that way. And the other players can be in the counties hiring more knights. Right. And they'll blow you away the next round. It's true. Or upgrading their castles, their castles produce gold. Because when mm -hmm. you take when you when you are first in a county, that's when you can spend three gold in the rewards phase mm -hmm. to gain one of those nobles. And that's where Andrew was talking about how you have to really be careful about when you receive the gold. Because right. uh, it, it may be that you're receiving it at the wrong time and, and you'll get it you'll get it in the rewards phase too late to get your noble. So those are kind of like the key tensions right. that I would say exist in this game. Right. And this game is pleasing. There's a pleasing breadth of strategy without it feeling disconnected at all. You know, not to beat on a certain designer that I'm not a fan of, uh, Feld. But, you know, sometimes it can feel I'm like you're just doing Andrew. a bunch of disconnected things. But in Lancaster, at least, you know, everything's integrated, everything's together, and there's a real opportunity cost for where you're going to spend your limited workers because they're all good options. France is good. England's good. Your your personal castle can even be good. Heck, in France, they're going to sit there for maybe a round or two before you actually win the battle, which means that's a big deal when yeah. you're playing five rounds in this game to give up one of your workers for that long. It might be worth it. There might be a battle out there that's going to give you 12 VPs, but oh, it's such an opportunity cost. It's such a tense decision. So another magic that I would say for me is in this game is that where you commit, the phase where you commit your knights. Mm -hmm. Now, is it worker placement? Yes. Is it dudes on the map? Maybe. Small word style, yeah. Sure. Kind of. Yeah. Is it bidding? Yeah. It's like all of those things rolled into this one. This game is really unique. Uh, now, to be fair, I used to think that worker placement, because the first worker placement game I ever played was Lords of Waterdeep, I used to think that worker placement essentially was defined by, um, and it got followed up, by the way, by uh, Russian Railroads. Mm. Uh, I used to think that worker placement was, was in essence, uh, defined by you put your worker down, you get some reward right away. Right. That's actually not quite true. I, I picked up Kalis recently, and going back to the roots of worker placement, no, Kalis paid out in a later phase, mm -hmm. and you could actually sort of deny mm -hmm. um, oh, deny somebody else their rewards from their workers. I'm taking a little bit of an aside here, but it kind of shows that maybe the first worker placement games weren't as kind as we thought they were. Right? You know, <laughs> they're, they're, they weren't they weren't nearly as benign as some of their older, yeah. or their younger brothers. Right? Yeah. But anyway, getting back to this, getting back to this phase. 
I, I, okay, so I mentioned this a bit earlier, that to knock somebody out, so you're going around, you, you basically go around the table until everybody has placed their knights. Mm-hmm. And you have a little shield, by the way, we haven't mentioned this, you have a little shield in front of you that shields the goal. The oh, gold. you do. I totally forgot about that. And, and the squires, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so... Let's say Andrew is uh, placing in, um, I'm going to pull out the board here. Dork. In Dork. <laughs> you know, it says York, but the Y looks really like a D. It's kind of funny. Here, let me open the board here. Sound effects. You guys hear that? All right. So let's say that Andrew places in York because he wants to gain another one night and two voting cubes. Sure. I really want the voting cubes because there's a law there that I really want. Um, so I go ahead and I say, yeah, Andrew, sorry. And I push his one. It's so satisfying, guys. You take it your knight. Really you put a couple squires on top of it, and you say you just kind of push it off, and put yours on York, and he has to reach the table and sort of pull it off. And it's sort of like you know you're saying in perfect medieval English, you know, my house, baby. <laughs> um, you know, and, I bite my thumb at thee. Right, and, and it's like don't even don't even try to take York back. Don't mm-hmm. even try because there are plenty more squires. Where yeah, that but came then from. I'm going to come back with my roided up buddies and I'm going to shove you off. Right, and, and and I could be sitting here saying, yeah, don't even try. I got plenty more squires where that came from, but I'm lying through my teeth. Right, I don't have a single right. other squire behind my screen. Right. And so now I love that. And, and and so Andrew's thinking, wait, does he or does he not? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got to try this. And so sometimes you try to save squires. The thing is that, yeah. that if he comes back and knocks mine off, I do get to keep my knight. But the squires you committed are gone. But you're right. The squires you right. committed are gone. Right. So sometimes it's better to come in big right. when you really need to secure a spot. Because then you can just scare them off. Say, oh, he's serious about this thing. Yeah. And, and so then it becomes – but what's cool is that – you get the knight back, and you have to place that knight. Yes, the round does not end until everyone's knights have been placed. So whenever you shove someone off, you're actually prolonging the round and increasing the chance that one of your own knights is going to be shoved off of something. And so if your knight, so if Andrew shoves my knight back off, and I'm like, ah, crud. Then I'm going to have to settle for something else. Then I look right. for a battle. Or maybe I do have one squire left, but not enough to take him out, but enough to take another player out. Right. But I know that if I take that other player out he might take me out of another spot because right. I freed up one of his knights. And sometimes it's best if a player has played all of their knights to leave them to alone. To let them be, yeah, let them, right? let them be out of the round. And I cannot tell you how many times in this game I have played purposely in a spot that I knew somebody else wanted. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted to see if somebody else was going to go for the spot that I really wanted. Yeah. And I just you smile with glee when they kick you off the spot because you're like, ah. Yes. Yeah. Now I, I know everybody else's intentions now, and I know which spots are free, right. which ones they're not going for, and I the spot that I really want is open, and I cost them a squire, right, by right. taking their spot. No, exactly. So, oh, it's just so delicious. That oh, whole man. that whole phase. It's sort of like the determination of combat in Small World, but way more interesting. Right. Way yes. Less accessible, but way more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a note on accessibility in a bit, but. A few comparisons in the Euro world, just to give you a quick frame of reference for this game. A couple things that really stood out to me. So Lewis and Clark has a really similar cutthroat mentality, I say. I think you're really mm. up in your opponent's business. You're kind of standing on your opponent's shoulders to get to where you need to go because neither of you are tall enough to reach the cookie jar on your own. 
So it feels like you're just all kind of fighting each other and you stagger across the finish line. So I, I see that same quality in Lewis and Clark that I do in Lancaster. Spirium also has a really interesting twist on worker placement yeah. where you almost do have bidding for turn spaces. You make a, an action more expensive the more meeples you drop down there. So you're kind right. of boasting of your ability to pay for it or your ability to time it to where you can snag it from your opponent. Yeah, um, There's a different feel to the game. Spirium doesn't have as strong of an arc. Mm-hmm. As Lancaster does, in Lancaster there's definitely a ramping up phase and then a, a coasting phase almost. So there's a little bit of difference there, but it has some of the similar, you'll get a little bit of the similar feel in the worker placement. And then uh, Russian Railroads is more of a traditional worker placement where you place and get immediately. Right. But it has that same brutal pressure of, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't take my spot. And in Russian Railroads, you can't even bump someone out of a spot, so it's even worse. And Russian Railroads has a really strong narrative progression. Not narrative in the sense of story, but narrative in the sense of what you do in the beginning really helps you in the end, and you kind of pick up steam. And Lancaster has that also, so your actions are kind of more linear, and you kind of have a progression as you go. So those are three Euro games that if you've tried any of them, you've got a little bit of the feel of Lancaster, and you should check this game out. This is a really solid Euro game. can be had for pretty cheap on Amazon and on other online stores, and you should definitely give it a try. You know, in comparison to other games, uh, you that was a, that was a good thing to do. I didn't think to uh, compare this to a lot of other games, but I will say one thing about its arc, and that is that when you complete a game, and this game lasts six rounds, is that correct? Five, six, five, I think. Five. When you complete this game, I mean, there, it does have a limited number of rounds, and so when you finish when you finish up the last round, you are going to feel like, oh, I wish I had done more. Right. But you're going to look back and you're going to think, mm, if I had tweaked this here or tweaked this mm-hmm. there, I might have been able to pull this off. And the next time I play, I'm going to da 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 da. I've played some Euro games that are limited in their number of rounds, mm-hmm. but you you get to the end and you're just thinking like, this game is like. Ugh, there's just not enough time to do what you need to do. Trajan. So, um, you don't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get what you're saying, though. Orléans is another game yeah. that has that same quality of, oh, I could have done a little bit better. And it, it entices you to come back instead of discouraging you from playing again. So this is tighter. Orléans has, like, what, 15 of those tiles. So That's you, true. You get a lot of rounds in. That's true, but the rounds um, are quicker in Orléans. Right. So. You know, Russian Railroads is, is like, yeah. tighter. That's, yeah. like... That's that's one of those games where I often just feel like oh, no space to breathe. Done differently, yep. you know. It's yep. it's just so this. I don't know this. This is. I think. I think it's just a testament to the design. Yeah. It. You want you want the carrot to be in front of you, but you don't want to dangle out so far ahead that you just feel like it's unattainable. Right. So this game does a pretty good job of that, and it's in its pacing. Yeah. Tim, do you do you even have any tragic moments for this game? I do with the base game. Okay. I'm curious if you have the same tragic that I have. The game needed a little more variability in setup. Mm-hmm. And what I don't like is the fact that the laws are the same in the mm-hmm. same order. Well, there's 
I think there's one that you don't see per round or something. Yeah, but, but it's, it's so, substantially the same. I, I wish the laws could have been a little more random, mm -hmm. but in the new laws, I think they kind of fixed that. I've played mm -hmm. with the new laws once already, and I mm -hmm. like it. And I think they, they give you some options for mixing up the laws mm -hmm. in a little bit more random way. Yeah. And, um, and I have a couple of issues with that. One, it just makes the game a little that part of the game a little too predictable. Mm -hmm. And two, it, it overly favors the experienced player against yeah, the new players. I was going to say that I'm, I wonder if there's an extra dimension of metagame that comes there when you play with a bunch of players that know all the laws, because then you can be planning for round four or five in round one. I haven't played with players who are experienced enough for that. Honestly, I probably don't have all the base game laws memorized, although I have a pretty good sense of what they are. Mm -hmm. So I was getting all set to disagree with you, but I don't think I've actually reached the point where that would be a concern, where, where I would even get a deeper metagame for all of us knowing the laws. So I think maybe it would be better to have that part of the game be more situational, a little more random. Right. I mean, the battle's coming out randomly. That's fine. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and I, th I think that adds variability to the mm -hmm. game. If 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 there's really not much variability in this game at all, right? Other than the players, yes, <laughs> how the players are going to react. All the best. But I games. felt like it needed a little bit more variability in setup. Sure. So, what about you? Any any tragics that you well, would say? I I have a similar one. I guess you could say it's similar, and I think I would describe this tragic moment as stifling and. Uh, Hear me out. Maybe I don't think this is just a case of the game getting overplayed. And maybe at the core, this is a thing about variability. But in this game, there are one or two ways you're going to want to get the majority of your points. And yes, tilting at the other players, challenging them for those good spots, running down those well-worn paths to victory is exciting, it's interesting, and it's enticing. And I love locking horns with people in this game, but I wouldn't want to do it too much. There's less built-in replayability in this game, I feel, from a from a frequency standpoint. You know, the challenge will always be interesting, but the challenge yeah. will always be the same. I don't I don't know if I agree with that. But I okay, I mean I have about probably eight, ten plays of this game in. Mm -hmm. So I can't say I've played it. Yeah, I have seven or eight to I know think. that to know if in fifty games it'll be the right. same. I will say that when you play against the same players and they don't vary their style, yeah, it becomes sort of like, oh yeah, I know how you play. You're gonna go, yeah. you're gonna go strictly for the nobles, and you're gonna go for. And I guess maybe that's what I was getting at. You know, we've played this game primarily with similar folks, right. and the couple times I brought it out with different audiences, I've really enjoyed it. But I guess this game, I guess you could get stuck in the metagame a little more quickly than some other games. I mean, take, for example, something like Tigers and Euphrates, where from the very first play, you've got a completely different board state every time. And the principles right. of what you're doing are the same. But the actual acts of what you're doing, those are going to be totally different. And in this one, you know, maybe you'll vary up your strategy, but the actual act of what you'll do, it'll be kind of the same. So... I would still label this as a very, very minor tragic. Yeah. Don't, don't you love that? You know, we came up with that term tragic. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, uh, to use across the board for anything, <laughs> any concern about a game. Yeah. So we have to say a minor tragic. That just sounds yeah. like an oxymoron. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I would call that just a very minor tragic. Yeah, no, it doesn't me. keep me it's from not. enjoying the game. So uh, there's replayability. What about accessibility? I mean, 
is this thing good to, to introduce new players to Bobby with? Hmm. I would say so. I would put it right about at the same level as a Lords of Vegas. You know, it's a medium weight game. It's not something you're going to be able to take out at a bar or, a, you know, when you're out on a picnic or whatever, whatever circum when do gamers play games, whatever circumstances you introduce new gamers to the hobby. But, you know, if, you know, when I've had people over to my house for five or six weeks for game night and they've shown a, a taste for these more interactive kind of in your face games. And I say, Hey, there's pretty great one over here. You should check it out. Yeah. I think it's yeah. pretty accessible. Well, Lancaster, I think is just a real jewel in the queen's crown. Uh, one of the few. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, look, we've gotten some flack already for some of the negatives, uh, reviews that we've mm -hmm. done on some games. And, uh, I'll just kind of say this to, to kind of keep hammering the point home to our listeners. Uh, we are in a market of board games that is just absolutely flooded with yeah. mediocre to good games, fine games. Well, it's a, if it's a, just a fine game, I, I don't want to buy it. Right. I want something that's really incredible. Right. I want to build a top 50 game shelf and, yeah. and play those games. Yeah. And Lancaster it has remained on this list now for what, a year and a half? And I, I just... I can't recommend it enough. I yep. think that that any of our listeners, if, if anything that we've said has has made your ears perk up about yeah. the mechanics of this game, the player interaction of this game, uh, check this game out. Yeah. Lancaster by Queen Games. Sweet. So our next topic is kind of a controversial one. Yeah. But, hey, I'm going to bring it up. I think it's worth having a discussion about. Absolutely. It is about moral criticism in board gaming. Does moral criticism belong in board gaming? Can we look at a board game and say, you know, there are some things about this board game that I have moral issues with. Yeah. And kind of what brought this up for me, I actually wasn't going to include this in the introduction. It was recently when Efka, from No Pun Included, reviewed Rising Sun. And on Board Game Geek Thread, he posted that he did kind of have a bit of a moral issue in the game with the seppoku, or however that's pronounced. This idea that on your turn, you can actually choose to go ahead and have all your warriors commit suicide, and you gain honor points for that. And he just kind of mentioned that, that he just found that a little bit distasteful. And I really thought he mentioned it in a rather respectful way. It was something that he just took a little bit of moral issue to the game with. What really concerned me were the flood of responses that he got in return. Very few of them were positive. Mm -hmm. The vast majority were incredibly negative, mm -hmm. uh, basically treating him sort of like an idiot for having a, a more restrictive or narrower moral viewpoint than their own. Right. Sort of like, oh, you poor unenlightened person, can't you see that this is uh, just kind of a little thematic thing in the game? It's, 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 you're really taking this far too seriously. Even Japanese uh, comics kind of make a joke of seppoku, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And really, I felt like, honestly, he was a bit ridiculed for this. And it, it, yeah. it really concerned me. And I'm also, can we just say, yeah. this is coming from the company who included a mythical character in their game, which was actually from Wikipedia as a result of a man who was pranked by his friends. 
They added a character that is no, not no. from Japanese mythology <laughs> at all, did no research, did had displayed no sensitivity to the Japanese culture in any way. Wow. I mean, if we had if we had come at this game from a different context, from one where they're saying, look, we are trying to accurately reproduce samurai here and some of their belief structures, of which seppuku is one, mm-hmm. then maybe we could have a conversation here. But no, this is this is a theme. This is glitz, glamour, and the company didn't do any research. This was tacked on to just someone wasn't thinking. <laughs> so I'm going to mention a couple of other instances that I've seen. Um, Shut Up and Sit Down um, reviewed a while back, well, a while back, uh, Blood Rage, and one mm-hmm. of their criticisms of the game was the way in which uh, fem- the female form they felt was sort of like over-exaggerated, over-sexualized, and yeah. objectified in a way that the, the male forms in the game were not. Right. It seemed to them sort of like unequal treatment. And mm-hmm. there, there, there are a whole host of issues that people can have here. Absolutely. You can have like from more of a, a like a Christian or moralist perspective mm-hmm. saying, hey, you know, there, there's a modesty issue here. You can have it more from a feminine empowerment perspective right. uh, an objectification perspective. There, there was so much here and oh my goodness, the threat are just filled sure. with all sorts of responses, both pro and against, etc. And I think this kind of discussion is good. Uh, I saw a BGG user on um, re- remark on the board game Five Tribes mm-hmm. ask a very innocent question in the forums I felt. Mm-hmm. She said, Hey, I, I kind of just don't really, not comfortable with some of the theming of the game. And I'm just wondering, has the game ever been rethemed in a different way? Oh my goodness! She got so flamed for being someone you know, take basically sort of take your Christian morality someplace else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And for those maybe not familiar, Five Tribes has some uh, the, the the genies bear some yeah. of the names of some of the ancient like demons and and gods uh, that that you know somebody coming from Judaism or Christianity might find distasteful right. or offensive. Right. Uh, my personal feeling was that the user asked this in a very benign way and in a very respectful way. It was, mm-hmm. in essence, flamed for it by several people. Yeah. Um, Tom Vassell's comments um, on Kingdom Death Monster and, mm-hmm. and Chaz Marler's also were some things that... I mean, there was some support, but there was a lot of trolling, a, a lot of flaming for that. Yeah. And so, as, as I watch these conversations come up, there is one main point that just really concerns me. We live in a highly polarized culture in which yeah. the art of civil disagreement is being lost. Absolutely. And what this means is there are two tendencies. So, so subscribers and listeners, just, just bear with me here for a moment. Let's put down sort of any pride or any sort of offense that you might feel so far. Right. And ask yourself this question. Is this true? That, that people tend to fall into one of these two categories. People with a more restrictive viewpoint basically come across as being harsh or ju- judgmental, right. sort of like the self-righteous person. Well, I don't like nudity in gaming, and I just think it's wrong. Right. And so you have a whole lot of people who kind of react to that and say, well, what do you mean it's wrong? It's just a celebration of the female form. Right. Da, 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 da. What's, the big, what's the big deal, et cetera, right? And then you have people. So that, that's the other extreme of it that people with a more open viewpoint often ridicule and demean the individual with a more restrictive viewpoint. Now, here's the amusing thing. Which one are you? If you're really honest with yourself, you're both. Right. Because there are some games that you're okay with and other people aren't, and there are some games that you draw the line at and other people don't. Right. And so this really doesn't come down to a question of who is more open Mm -hmm. or who is more closed. This really comes down to a question of, are you going to be a butt with people who, who have see things differently than you? 
Is it really necessary to? Right. Right. I know that was really eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Board games are a function of the real world. They're a reflection of everything that's going on around us. This this has bearing on more than just gaming. This has bearing on how you react to everyone in your life. And I don't need to tell you other places where this might be applicable. Look, gaming, for many of us, is a place where it's open, it's welcoming. It's a place to to get away from the real world. And if, if you get away from the real world in a different way than me... I'm not saying that what you do is necessarily okay, but I'm saying let's not kill each other because we disagree. Let's have a conversation about it. Because I disagree with Kingdom Death Monster fans, that doesn't mean that I hate you for playing that game. It doesn't mean that you can't play that game or that you're a moral travesty because you play that game. It means that you have drawn the line in a different place than I have drawn it. And I'll I'll take a more... uh... Uh, an example where I might be less restrictive Mm -hmm. because I think some people might view me at this point as more restrictive Mm -hmm. but for instance, I don't, I don't get wigged out about Mombasa or games that, where sort of colonialization is mm-hmm. is a you know a big deal. I'm not advocating sort of going out and wiping people out from their native populations. We right should now. talk about it. Let's talk about Puerto Rico in the context of Spirit Island. Maybe if you want two sides of the same coin. Or, you know, mm. let's talk yeah. about let's talk about gender in one game where another game has great gender representation. Let's bring let's bring the positive examples to the forefront. Let's at least have the conversation. Right. Let's break it out of the mold of, oh, you hate my favorite game, you must be wrong. Let's talk about this more broadly. Right. Should gaming have games that that dwell on the theme of slavery? I I'd pull the opposite tack as you. I I would get wigged out about that. And see, it's weird. Like, Mombasa doesn't wig me out, mm-hmm. but Lewis and Clark kind of does. Mm-hmm. It's like, here, native, yeah. native tribe person, go do my bidding. Right. And I, it feels kind of just yeah. weird to me. And yeah. I... It doesn't keep me from playing the game every now and then, but mm-hmm. I, I kind of don't pull that out in some groups mm-hmm. for that very reason. Right. And I think that's okay. I think, I think it's okay both ways. I think it's okay to be conscientious about that game, I think it's also okay to play that game and enjoy it. You are not personally enslaving Native Americans as you play that game. I think you might even have a different answer to that question on two Mm -hmm. different days of the week. That's okay. The important thing is, let's have the conversation. Let's be aware that this exists. So what I'm advocating for here is something that I think might be a foreign topic in this country anymore, Mm -hmm. which is civil disagreement. Mm -hmm. Polite disagreement. (laughs) I'm talking about being able to sort of assume the best of a person and and, and their intentions Mm -hmm. and, and, and just say, okay, tell me your viewpoint. Help me understand it. And... You know, here's my viewpoint on this. And and that other person being able to sit and go, hmm, I see your viewpoint. I still disagree. Yeah. But at least you walk away with a bit of an understanding. Right. At least you walk away a little bit enriched. And yeah. at least you walk away with having an opportunity to have influenced the other person. Yeah. Because you weren't a jerk about it. Yeah. And I've kind of created uh, sort of several little rules that I try to follow for myself. One, really listen to the other person's perspective. This is hard. It requires some intellectual and personal discipline to put down your offense for the moment and think about what is driving the other person's concern. Mm. This is doubly important if the person has has taken a civil tone to begin with. In that case, you owe it to them to give them a fair hearing. Sure. Look, sure. if a person just says, if a person sits down at your table and says, 
Oh, you're playing Blood Rage. You know, I'm here with my preteen son. Um, would you guys mind, I mean, if we just head in the other room and maybe take one of the other games and just do a two-player game here? I just don't like my preteen son sort of like being around the female figures in this game. I, right. I just find them a little bit less clothed than I like him to be. I don't want to teach him to objectify fem- females in this way. Right. What are you, you going to do at this point? Are you going to blast your friend? Does he deserve that? He spoke to you in a civil tone. Do you, do, you right. not, do you not feel like you have an obligation to at least respond in a way that's civil? Right. Even if you utterly disagree? So that's my first point. And my second kind of rule for myself, make your point without demeaning the other person. A great discipline is to express the logical merits of some of their viewpoints, particularly where there is some common ground. Right. For instance, you know what? The truth is, I actually do agree that sort of colonization of native peoples was really a horrible thing. Yeah. But the truth is that it did happen in history. Yes, I'm playing a game that emulates that, but we play games all the time that sort of emulate horrible things, violent mm-hmm. first-person shooters, etc. Right. But the point is that if we have a good separation of fantasy from reality, then it's not really an issue, is it? Mm-hmm. At least it's not for me. And the person mm-hmm. says, well, it is for me. And so you say, well, we agree to disagree. Okay, mm-hmm. and life goes on. Right. But you had a civil discussion about it. Right. And you've made your point without demeaning the other person saying, why are you such a narrow-minded bigot. Mm -hmm. We don't need that in this industry, and actually, we don't need this across the board in this country right right now. There's way too much polarization on on social issues, on political issues. We need to develop the art of civil disagreement, and I think board game music is a great place to to develop that art. Absolutely. And I'm just going to throw out one name here. One name that you've got to go and look up Nicole Hoy, she's a reviewer for the Daily Worker Placement. She's also on the Great Way Games podcast. She's a phenomenal voice in the hobby right now that's talking about this. And, and she, she actually one of the coolest taglines too. Like the whole Nicole. <laughs> that's really cool. Like yeah, that. the whole Nicole. Um, really works but yeah, she has a quote from her from her post, which you should go look up, why I'm not here to ruin your fun. And then they also actually did a podcast on Great Way Games called Your Faves Are Problematic. That was just a couple episodes ago. So you should go look mm-hmm. both of those up. But here's a little just piece from Nicole that we'll just use to wrap this up. Learn to take these criticisms of your favorite games and think broadly about them, especially how they fit into the larger context of this world outside our hobby. We need thoughtful, honest, and critical views of the hobby right now before it becomes a mass that can never be cracked and enjoyed by anyone who's different than the norm. Learn to take on these criticisms. Seriously. Take a breath. This is important, and we need to be having conversations about this stuff. Civil conversations. Yep. Uh, I think... The social interactions that we have in board gaming, I think, Andrew, you, you say this a lot. How, how do you say board gaming is a... Uh, gaming is, is a framework for our social interactions. Right. Gaming is a framework for our social interactions. Yeah. And, and, and what, I, what I see as an opportunity here is that gaming can be a framework in which you can address some of these controversial issues. Yeah. And learn to do it in a way that serves us all in much better ways and in the greater form of life. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. um, Yeah. We'd be really interested in any comments that you have. Yes. Um, Send us your comments. Either we always post a guild thread with posting of our episode or you can email us directly to hello at getonboard.games. We'd welcome your feedback in either of those channels. And send us some mail if you'd like so that we can uh, sing the mail song again. Oh, gosh. 
Wait, wait, wait. Are are you are you taking moral exception to my I'm taking song? your more your male song is a crime against all of humanity, and I refuse to compromise on any opinion to the contrary. Get over here, you pin. You know what? I'm just <laughs> Let's let's do recent plays quickly, quickly. Uh, well, we just we recorded our last podcast a few days ago, so I haven't had a lot of recent plays. Okay, but I did pull out Yinch with you. I'm gonna pull that. I'm gonna pull that one out. The first time I played Yinch with you, you were like really tired and had a cold, and you weren't getting it very well. Yeah. To you. The second time I played Yinch with you, you were really tired and had a cold, but this time <laughs> <laughs> you seemed to to get it a little bit more. Oh man, I. I saw the game so much better the second time around. Yinch is unfairly compared to Connect Four. Oh, it's so much more. It's so much more. It is, yes, it's true that you're trying to get five in a row in Yinch, but the way that you do it is, oh, it has this dynamism in it where you can you can try to play several moves ahead. Right. It's 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 a much more sophisticated game than checkers or connect right. four, but it's a much uh, it's a, it's much easier than like yeah. chess, for instance. Yeah. The key word I would pick to describe it is fluid. It's a fluid game. The game state is constantly changing. The advantage is moving back and forth compared to one of my other favorite abstracts, Twixt, where the game state is very static. You you generally slowly build up these positions and you get more and more entrenched as the game goes on. Yinch is very fluid and actually the better you're doing, the fewer rings you have to influence the board. What, what a brilliant mechanic. Oh, this idea that when oh, you score, phenomenal. you have to pull one of the rings off your board and the yeah. ring is what you use to sort of move the little pawn yeah. tokens with. Yeah. And so now you have fewer options and the other player kind of has a momentary advantage. The initiative and catch-up mechanism? Oh man. The initiative I mean, in this cool. game shifts back and forth so quickly and I love that. It's so much more dynamic. If I can say dynamic, that's probably a meaningless buzzword. But really, it feels more like fencing than a game. I mean, you're just like, bah, boo, bah, bah, da. you know, it feels like how I hope Go will become when I get not dumb at it. And man, I am I am totally on board this abstract. Yeah. I'm really sold on it. Well, that was mine. I took it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we shared that one. What's your but, recent play? Oh, uh, well, I have a... I have a disappointing report. In our last episode, I talked about Sakura by Reiner Knizia. Beautiful little box game by uh, Osprey Games. I was really hoping... I've heard comparisons to Gravwell, which is a game I've been interested in. I was hoping this could be another solid filler for my rotation. And I have to report that it was not. In fact, this is this game was so disappointing that I am selling this game. I rated it, I think, a three after two plays. I was wow. really unimpressed with it. Yeah, and tell us about that emperor thing. It's yeah, like so this is a really interesting mechanic where you have this hand of cards, and every turn you're going to move the emperor and yourself. But it's simultaneous play, so you all choose a card to play and then flip it over, and the number on the card determines what order they play in. So that by itself sounds a little bit random. Okay, but I could deal with that, you know, if that worked. And it, and it did work better in four players. When we played four players, I kind of saw where we were going. 
Holy moly. Then I tried it with six and all of the problems that I sensed in four were just amplified with six players. So I would definitely never play it again with six. I might try it again with three or four. But basically what happened is no one could resist the temptation to send the emperor backwards and bump whoever was in first because there were so many people on the board that you were just jumping forward so many spaces and then you'd be right up next to the emperor and then someone would bump you back and then someone would bump the next person back and the emperor ended up pushing all of us back almost to the starting gate and we had barely made any progress at all after about 20 minutes oh it was exhausting and i looked at the game state right then and i said I don't want to play this game ever again. I'm done with it. It it was a bummer, but you know what? It did get me thinking about some other great filler games that I have that I really enjoy, like Deep Sea Adventure, which is probably the only uh, roll and move game that I enjoy in in my collection. And so... Maybe I guess if you're going to do a game like Gradwell, that would be kind of like the shorter, lighter version yeah. of it, right? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, shorter, less painful, less random. A roll-and-move game is less random than this. So, yeah, unfortunately, the man who has designed 600-plus games, Reiner Knizia, as we all might have guessed, he has the misses along with the hits. And this one, unfortunately, was a miss for me. We're not going to be reviewing it. It is a lovely little package, but it's there's death inside. It's not worth it. We shall speak of it no more. Sakura. Okay, now no more. Yeah, the last recent play, and that brought us up in my last recent plays, because I, I, I had gotten a couple rounds in, but this time we've got a full game in, three-player game of 51st State. Ah, yeah. And I, I think it has some potential. I, I, I'm, I like it. I'm still, I'm a little bit concerned about its ongoing replayability. Yeah, I wasn't entirely sold on this one when we tried it. I, I tentatively liked it, but I think there's other games that I want to play before this one. And at first, I thought it was going to sort of thematically fire uh, Arctic Scavengers for me. Because I, it just felt like, boy, it's a card game that does a po- post-apocalyptic way better. Right. But it, it is still sort of a Euro-y trade resources for other resources. Into, and in the first game, I guess one thing that I was a little bit disappointed was... The player who committed to raising buildings mm-hmm. um, sort of ended up, well, I guess he tied for second. Mm-hmm. But for most of the game, he was last. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess I had expected attacking to figure more into this game, but I felt like I wasn't rewarded enough for the attack. It was hard to attack if you didn't yeah. have that engine built up. He was the only one who had the engine to even attempt it. Yeah, and so I, I'm looking forward to trying some of the expansions to see if they've maybe made a little more complicated. and I are completely different. If I play a game and I'm unimpressed by it, I'm like, well, the expansions aren't going to save this. But I wasn't unimpressed. I yeah. liked it. I was just a little, I was a little bit less impressed at how the theme yeah. didn't come through. Well, in that um, case, you probably should try the expansions. It's, it's still, I think, a lovely tableau builder. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. I just call, it, I just call that board. I just lovely. call that box lovely. So wow. invigorating. <laughs> I have it with my afternoon tea. 51st yeah, State by Nelson These Mad Max-looking freaks on the front cover. I just call it lovely. No, <laughs> I, I think it's a good game, but I, I definitely am looking forward to getting the five plays in that we require for a full sure. reserve to see, to see where I land with that. Any other recent plays in the ring? That's it. That's it. Shut it down. <laughs> Shut us down, man. Thank you so much for listening to our Lancast review and our discussion about discussions in board games. This has been our 17th episode. 
And we are back every Monday. And we try, try, try to release written reviews every Wednesday. You can find us on the web at www.getonboard.games or on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, wherever you get the best podcasts. This has been Get On Board. I'm Andrew. I'm Tim. Thanks for listening. Bye. Welcome to Get On Board. Yes. Welcome.